Well, before you should be Psalm 66. Let's read this together. Shout for joy to God all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. Uh, there did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. Who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip? For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. This is the word of our Lord. I want to begin by mentioning something that has surely happened to you, uh, sitting in a quiet restaurant hoping to have a quiet conversation with someone, and someone sits down right next to you, and their conversation is very loud. And their conversation, be it between two people or between a person and someone on, the, on a cell phone, uh, you hear more of their conversation than you hear of the conversation that you're a part of at your own table. And we all know this feeling. There's a real sense that in Psalm 66, we have uh, that kind of sensation and that there is, in the beginning of Psalm 66, the picture of a man who's shouting, and he's shouting to the entire world. All the earth, uh, verse 1 says, and in verse 5, the address seems to be directed to the children of man, which would be to everyone. And not only this, but that uh, noisy person, that person shouting to the entire world is actually issuing commands to the world. There at the beginning of the psalm, shout, sing, give, say to God, those are all uh, commands. And so while we have this, as you know, Uh, a poet used by God, as we have this poet who is speaking uh, loudly to the world, uh, he does also acknowledge the, the table, as it were, that's near to him. Because at the same time that he's shouting to all the earth, he expects to be heard by a subgroup of people, those who in verse 16 fear God. 
And he expects also to be heard not just by a group of people, but he seems to want to be heard by individuals as a part of that group of people. He wants to be heard by you sitting here this morning. And then at the very end, he shares some personal items about his own life. Uh, He uh, shares his need to make burnt offerings to God. He shares his need, uh, his need to cry out to God. He uh, shares that there is a presence of iniquity in his life. And he shares in verse 19 the voice of his prayers. Now, which will it be? Will it be the man who sits down next to you and who talks as if he's addressing the entire world? Or will it be the man who sits down next to you and then suddenly turns to you and looks at you face to face to address you personally? Well, it's both. Who would shout commands to the whole world while also sharing personal items about his uh, walk before God, expecting uh, that that would have an impact on those who are standing nearest to him? Who would do this? Well, we might think that uh, the person who would do this is is the person who has no real sense of uh, social propriety, Uh, the kind of person who just doesn't know how to behave in social settings. It could be that, but it's, it's not. You know that. What kind of person would do this? It's a person who has something to say that has just as much public value as it does personal value. That's certainly the case. It would be the kind of person who believes uh, truly what he has to say. And even though it's personal, it has a a personal bearing on his life, we see that at the very end of the psalm. Even though it's uh, immensely personal, it needs to be heard by the entire world. So it's a man who is confident about that which he has to say, that it's true personally, but it's also true uh, cosmically, universally. The poet is saying that his God, the the one whom he worships and the one to whom he prays, is worthy to be worshipped by the entire world. This is true even though the poet in this psalm admits that he himself isn't worthy to have a God like this. He is a man who is a sinner. He is a man who needs atonement for his sin. He admits those things, and he admits them loudly for all the world to hear. So why is it then that the poet is sharing this with the entire world? It's not primarily, I would argue, to teach the entire world. It's almost as if the poet is shouting to the world so that he might uh, have a, a, a more illustrious reputation to teach those who are actually sitting right next to him. He's shouting to the world that he might teach his brothers and sisters in the church. He's being an example to them of a sinner who continues to cry out in his need for God, but he's not ashamed to do so because he knows that his God is with him. And so he shouts loudly, I think not for the good of the world as much for the good of you and me who are watching him shout loudly. And perhaps as he's shouting to the world, we'll take what he has to say to heart. Even in the setting of the poet's sin and need, God's God's steadfast love will never depart from him. And as this is shouted to the world, the poet believes that his fellow Christians will derive great comfort from this proclamation. Even in the setting of a sin and need, the steadfast love of the Lord will never depart from him. He shouts it to the world, 
You, sitting next to him, are you listening? Well, the poet begins in the first four verses with, as I said earlier, this confident command to the entire world, to all the earth. And he makes these uh, great commands to the world, shout for joy, which they don't, sing the glory of his name, which they don't, give to him glorious praise, which they don't, say this to God. And it's a very long quote. Say this to God. How awesome are your deeds, great is your power, your enemies come cringing to you, all the earth worships you, etc., Say that to God, which they don't. Now, (laughs) there's a proclamation for you in the first four verses of this psalm that are a proclamation that you would think bring a little bit of embarrassment. Here, uh, this poet, this follower of God, as he'll tell us, is shouting to the world, and the world is not inclined to listen to him. But he still wants the world to hear because he cares that this God's uh, authority is actually made known. This God, he's worthy. And he's worthy not because of me, the shouter to the world. He's worthy because of who he is. His power is not a yet-to-be-determined kind of power. Look what he tells the world to to say. He says, uh, say this to God. And part of what he is telling the world to say is that all of God's enemies are defeated. And it's true. All of God's enemies are defeated. The domain of Satan, the entire spiritual realm, knows who God is. It's over. He's victorious. That's what the poet is telling the world to say to God. God, you're victorious. Well, it's remarkable that this preacher, I believe the poet is a preacher, this preacher is making a great example to us. As ludicrous as it might sound, saying these things to the world, he's actually setting an example. We are to be the kind of people who noisily proclaim the character of God, the victory of God. But the poet is also doing something else for us. He's not merely uh, making an example of what it looks like to proclaim the gospel without shame. If we think about the poet's original circumstances, uh, here, uh, talking uh, or singing, it would be better, singing this psalm in the presence of the inhabitants of Jerusalem in the city of King David. There are indeed in that city believers who need to hear this over and over and over again. The majority of David's audience are believers And they need to be reminded of how great God is, but there are also non-believers in that very city. And they remain non-believers, and yet here David is. He continues to command them, shout for joy, sing the glory, give him glorious praise, and say to God that he is victorious over and over and over again. David is saying that to non-believers. But really the crux of the psalm is this. We need to hear this message. We need this reminder that our God is worthy to receive praise, that our God is victorious. Why do you think it is that we need this reminder? Well, the poet's going to tell us, 
And he's going to do so by making three invitations uh, in verses 5 through 19. Uh, Three separate invitations. And in the Hebrew, they are oh so clear to see. And with each of these invitations, we can see that the poet is not merely making a rhetorical device. They are truly commands that he is making. So they're invitations, but they're strong invitations, all three of them. And what they do is they pique the interest of the hearer. They pique our interest as we read this psalm. But they also dare the hearer to walk away because the poet is speaking with confidence. Let me give you an example of the first invitation, verses 5 through 7. It's an invitation to notice what God is like. Come and see what God has done. Those are the command words. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. Children of man is an appeal to a broader uh, audience. That's why he says in verse 7, nations. So when he says come and see, he means uh, come and notice all you nations. Come and be aware all you nations. Uh, Pay attention. And he's asking them to pay attention to God. In fact, commanding them to pay attention to God. And you see uh, clearly what the poet does in this first invitation, an invitation to notice what God is like. The poet describes an event in world history some 400 or 500 uh, years ago from the original audience. The event in world history is, you know, the exodus. Now for the Christians in the audience, they're reminded of something They're reminded of God's special affection for those who are truly his children, uh, those children of God God in the Exodus. And as a Christian, uh, they understand that they are truly God's delivered people. They are now a nation with an earthly king, a king who it would seem is singing this very poem to them, a king who loves God. And so the Christian is reminded of God's affection. Look what God has done making us into a nation with the king who loves God. But the Christian is also reminded with this first invitation, come and see what God has done. The Christian is reminded that while God was worthy to be uh, praised for that time, he's worthy now just as well. Look what the poet says in verse 7. He says, God rules by his might. It's present tense. Yes, God ruled then during the exodus But he rules by his might today. He is just as worthy now as he was then. And also in verse 7, he he, uh, reminds the non-believer something. But I don't want us to skip too quickly over this. Uh, Christian, you and I, we need this reminder. That God who delivered his children from the exodus, that God rules today. That affection of God that was shown during the time of the Exodus, that affection of God is with us today. Even as Christians, we are so very forgetful. But this invitation also reminds the non-believer of something, doesn't it? Look in verse 7. As we think about the Exodus and how God uh, mastered the nations of the Hebrew people, that those nations would not uh, serve to uh, stop God's people, uh, so too does God continue to master the nations even today. Verse 7 says, His eyes keep watch on the nations. Now, 
today. Just as God did then, God does today. And then furthermore, the poet says that God knows that the rebellious exalt themselves. So those in the city of David, those here this morning in this uh, sanctuary right now, if you are not a believer, you need to understand that God has a power over all the world. There's no such thing as an allegiance to another leader that is outside of God's rule. And not only that, this God knows that you are rebellious. Now, in this first invitation, uh, this uh, invitation that the poet makes, an invitation to notice what God is like, this connection between the non-believer and the believer is actually very important to notice. You see, the covenant of grace that was given to Abraham reminds us that the deliverance of God's people as recipients of God's special favor and affection, that that work of God in the covenant of grace was to serve as a blessing to the world. Our very lives as Christians is to serve as a blessing to the world. Exodus 19 is very clear that Israel was not saved for their own sake. Israel was saved for God's great affection for the entire world. A non-salvific affection to be sure, but God's covenant of grace is to be a blessing to the nations. And so God treasures his people and the entire world belongs to him. And so the poet invites the world, come and notice what God is like. Now, we should also recognize that uh, the poet is uh, himself showing what God is like as he stands and he proclaims verses 1 through 4. You want to know what God is like? He does this to my heart. I desire to sing the power of God even in the presence of those who may hate him. God does that. And so the poet in verses 5 through 7 says, come and notice what God is like. But then the poet uh, narrows his focus, as it were, so that in verses 8 through 15, the second invitation comes. Again, a, a strenuous invitation. This is an invitation to kneel before God in worship. The word uh, come is missing in verse 8, but he says, uh, bless our God, O peoples, let the sound of his praise be heard. Now, who is this for? He seems to be uh, focusing his attention uh, uh, slightly away from the the world, from the nations. And he says, O peoples. He seems to be addressing a church body as a whole. He says in verse 9 that God has kept our soul among the living. And so clearly in verses 8 through 15, he's speaking to believers And yet the poet is addressing not simply Christians, but Christians who seem to know something about suffering. They know that being a Christian does not mean that hardship is removed. And so uh, here in in this invitation, we can see in verse 10 uh, that the poet brings to mind that even in the Exodus, God's people suffered. Now, sometimes it was for their testing and for their discipline. That's what verse 10 is about. But sometimes uh, they suffered uh, simply as a matter of God's ordinary care they just suffered because they are uh, in the world we suffer persecution today we suffer persecution simply by being a part of a world that has yet to sing praises to jesus but he will return 
He will judge the entire world and no one will doubt him. But for now, we do suffer the persecution of the world. But as a Christian, we not only suffer that persecution, we suffer the ministry of the devil. The Bible is clear that the devil continues to antagonize us, uh, not with complete and utter victory, but in God's care for us, God allows the devil to trouble us. And also, uh, we suffer in this world today, not uh, merely because of the persecutions of the world, not merely because of the work of the devil, but because of indwelling sin. Sin uh, remains, and while sin does not rule us, it is, it is fitting to God's glory that he would leave us in the world professing faith in him and yet still struggling with indwelling sin that must be killed more and more in our lives and one day will be entirely eradicated from us. And so we suffer today. But he says in verse 7 that God rules by his might together and as God rules by his, by his might or by his might forever and as he rules by his might forever, we need to acknowledge that he has the right to allow us to suffer. He has the right to build our faith. James tells us that God tests our faith to produce steadfastness, James 1, 3. And as we read earlier in the service, Peter, uh, perhaps quoting this very poet in this very poem, uh, tells us that a tested faith is actually what? A genuine faith. How do we know that we've survived uh, the test of our faith that God allows to happen? Well, 1 Peter 1.7 says that we offer praise and glory and honor to Jesus our Lord. And then for the poet, we could ask that same question uh, for that Christian who is uh, suffering some kind of affliction, who is being uh, tested by God for something. Uh, What is the result of this well-tested poet? Well, what does he say? He says, bless our God, O peoples, right there in verse 8. The Christian, even amidst their suffering, bends their knee to God. Give glory and praise to Jesus, their Lord. Now, here's the point of what the poet is saying in this invitation, an invitation to bow down before God. The point is this, is that Christians do indeed suffer today, but God has the right to allow this to happen. God has the right to test our faith. And so we would say it this way, we would say that Christians are not free from suffering, They are rather equipped for suffering because they fall on their knees before a God who loves and cares for them. Now, before we leave this second invitation, this uh, invitation to kneel before God and worship, the poet says something personal in verses 13 through 15. He says, I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you. What is he doing? The poem has taken this autobiographical turn, and it becomes personal. If you look in verses 13 through 15, the the first-person verbs, the I verbs, appear seven times. He's referring to some actual hardship in, in his life. He's a man who knows what he talks about. He himself is afflicted, is suffering, it's hurt. Look at verse 14. He says, I was in trouble. Now, we don't know the details of this affliction, do we? 
It's important for us to acknowledge that he is afflicted and that the the great confidence that he has in verses 1 through 4 is the confidence that comes from a man who knows what affliction is like. It may have been the result of a test of his faith. I think that's likely. Uh, He is aware that God is testing his faith. But he may not know that very well, and he certainly hasn't seen fit to tell us what that affliction is or how that affliction came about. It may also be the result of his own sin. It may be something that God has simply allowed to happen. It may be a chastisement of the evil one. The the poet doesn't clearly answer this, but he does tell us what? He tells us personally his response. Clearly, in his trouble, he turns to God. He appears to have uttered a desperate vow to God. Uh, His lips and his mouth spoke to God. And actually, it would seem as though just grammatically that the trouble was so great that he didn't speak as much as he uttered. And that word for for uttering is, is he parted his lips. He didn't so much speak. He just opened his lips and some cry poured out. But in his affliction... He did not become a deist. God is not personally present. In his affliction, he did not become a pragmatist. I I need to solve this riddle in my life. And in his, his affliction, he didn't become a naive optimist. Everything will be okay. He cried out to God. John Calvin says that the poet never allowed himself to be so overcome by grief as not to throw his desires into the express form of what? A prayer, a petition. Calvin goes on to say that he cast himself for safety into the hands of God. Notice something. We don't know if the poet's affliction is entirely ended. And we we can say that because when we look at verse 9, what does he say? He says, he is the one who keeps our soul among the living. He is the one who does not let our, our feet slip. And it may be in the very composition by the Holy Spirit of this psalm, he is suffering affliction. Christians suffer. Well, so he makes this first invitation then. He, he invites the world, come and notice what God is like. But then in this second invitation, he himself becomes a proclamation of God's work because he kneels before God. And he says to us, kneel before him in your need. You see, even in the setting of the poets, uh, sin and need, affliction and trouble... God's steadfast love will never depart from him. And so he shouts this to the world, but he also shouts it so that his fellow Christians will draw special comfort from his own life. And then finally in verse 16, we see his his third uh, invitation. And this invitation is so moving because it's so deeply personal. It's an invitation to hear the poet Come and hear all you who fear God. And it's an invitation not merely to hear, but the word for uh, hear in the Hebrew can often be understood as uh, obedience. It's, It's hearing, but it's hearing plus something and so what he is doing is he he is offering a challenging invitation because it's an invitation to obey and not only obey 
but to do as he does. Listen to what he says. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. His audience is all who fear God. Verse 16 is clear. Verses 1 and 5, the audience seems to be the entire world. Verse 8, the audience seems to be uh, the peoples of the church. And and if we carry that trajectory forward here in verse 16, uh, he is addressing a Christian crowd. But the tone, the tone is so serious that uh, he seems to be addressing Christians who are currently suffering. They know it. They feel it. And they're hurting And so the poet is about to say something. And he's shouted so loudly that the entire world is now listening. The world listens carefully. What is he going to say next? And the Christians who are uh, present nearest to the poet, uh, they too are listening. And what he wants the world to hear, and what he wants us as Christians to hear, is the same thing. That a follower of Jesus Christ can count on his care during their hurts and their afflictions. This is a proclamation that's not due to the confidence of the poet. This proclamation is due to God's affection for the poet as a Christian man who is suffering. He knows who to cry out to. And he says in verse 16, let me tell you what he's done for my soul. Now, I want to talk just a little bit more about this public appeal. He's saying something that's very personal. He is going to describe uh, the Christian's confidence in God to be with you even during your affliction. But I want us to understand something about this. This poem begins with a loud cry to all the world. And very often as Christians, we think that our greatest appeal for the gospel is an appeal that we make from a position of success. These good and wonderful things have happened in my life, and I hold these out to you as an example of what it is like to walk as a Christian. You should become a Christian like me. We certainly feel more comfortable making an appeal for the gospel that is an appeal out of our success, but that's not what this poet does. Let's not forget that we as Christians, unlike uh, any other person on the planet, We as Christians can make an appeal from our hurts, from our sufferings. We can say to the world, yes, I am in pain. And it is true, I do not see an earthly solution that will make this pain go away. How is that a gospel appeal? But let me tell you anyway... What he has done for my soul. Do you hear the poet doing that at the very end of this psalm? Let me tell you anyway what he has done for my soul. And so in our hurts and in our afflictions, we have this special commonality with the world. And we don't have to solve those afflictions. Let me tell you what he's done for my soul, even though I am hurting right now. Some of you may know uh, the uh, novel Things Fall Apart by Shinua Achebe. 
In this novel, it's, a, it's about a uh, Nigerian a tribe with a hero figure. And the hero figure is uh, really a picture of uh, American ingenuity and success. He's a man who, uh, who it's a rags for riches story in many ways. He's a man who uh, pulled himself up by his own bootstraps, everything going against him. But uh, this man, uh, whose name is Onkonkwo, uh, is a man who achieved more than anyone else in his tribe. And he uh, rises to this very lofty status by his hard work and then something happens in his life where he's banished for seven years maybe you remember reading the novel yourself in college and the author says this about Okonkwo everything was going so well and the author says clearly his personal god uh, it's the personal god is chi or chai c-h-i clearly his personal god was not made for great things the man was made for great things the man had a great plan great success but this bad thing happened in his life and he's banished for seven years so clearly then his god was not made for great things and so uh, what needs to happen is that you need to pace yourself with your god you don't want to go beyond your own god now, I think that many Christians will import a bit of this uh, philosophy of Onkonkwo in their own lives. When uh, hardship uh, happens to them, uh, they uh, will just uh, quickly uh, assume that, well, God must not be here. I, I, I need to find a different God, or God wasn't meant to solve these kinds of problems. Or uh, we might do something a little bit more sinister. We might say, uh, well, you know, God is just uh, taking me uh, someplace else, and my job is to just ride it out. Clearly, his personal God was not made for great things. But that's not what the poet does. The, the poet actually acknowledges that he is hurting. He acknowledges his affliction. He acknowledges that this is not a part of his own design. And at the same time that he is acknowledging those things, he has great confidence in the work of the gospel in his life. Such great confidence that he is far from shy or ashamed. He is punchy. He is shouting to the entire world the great glory of his God. He kneels before his God in his hurt. He refuses to believe that God has rejected him in any way. He refuses to believe that his life is somehow throwing God out of sync. And he even refuses to believe that his own life is out of sync. He believes that God has not rejected his prayer, but that God hears him and is with him. In fact, for God to reject his prayer is for God to remove his steadfast love. This is a man who is hurting, who knows suffering, but his confidence isn't dented. His confidence swells. And he makes this appeal to the world. Even in the setting of all of my need and desperation, God's steadfast love will never depart from me. And as he makes that appeal to the world, we as Christians should listen. This is an appeal that we too can make. And you don't have to wait until your life comes together. You become sorted out and then you can proclaim the goodness 
of God. You can do it now. And that's what the poet does. Even in sin, even in desperation, even in affliction, even in hurt, God's steadfast love will never depart from you. And he proclaims this to the world, but I believe he proclaims it to the world so that we, as professing Christians, might particularly take notice. His love will never depart. Let's pray together. Our Father, we wish to not be cowards. We wish to be proclaimers of the gospel, not demurely, but loudly. You're with us. You'll never leave us. And you're always listening to us. So, Father, we would ask that you would comfort us in our afflictions, that you would sustain and care for us. But we pray more deeply for this, that in our afflictions, we would learn to love the gospel all the more and shout that loudly to the world. And so, with that in mind, we thank you for our afflictions. In Jesus' name. Amen.